the good news of Jesus Christ is truly amazing. God freely forgives people who have broken his law. He forgives us not because we deserve it, not because we can earn it in some way, not because of some ritual that we do. He forgives because of his grace, because of his love, because of his mercy. And God forgives even the worst of sinners. Think about Saul of Tarsus for a moment. He had consented unto the death of Stephen, who was so brutally killed for his witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. And he had gone on uh, to persecute Christians. He was on that road to Damascus to bring the disciples of Jesus bound back to Jerusalem. When he uh, was stopped in his tracks and he received grace from God, he uh, was uh, forgiven. When such a sinner repents and believes, great glory is given unto God. The grace of God is magnified. The doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone is indeed wonderful. And this has been explained and set out and argued for in the first five chapters of this epistle to the saints at Rome. Man's condition has been thoroughly examined and found to be desperate and hopeless. But then God's great, powerful salvation has been declared and explained. But when we hear the wonderful news of free forgiveness, that great gift of God at the price of the suffering of Christ on that cruel cross, it is easy to fall into error. And in Romans chapter 6, we find that the apostle suddenly brings up an error uh, that some fall into. And sometimes it's raised as an objection. If God freely forgives, and if his free forgiveness of our law-breaking brings glory to God, wouldn't it be good if we broke as many laws as we possibly could, so that the full extent of God's grace and mercy would be seen. The more we sin, the more glory God gets. That's what this argument is stated as. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? But this is a total misunderstanding 
of God's good news. Before we look at that in detail, I just want to take for a moment or two to point out that error must be dealt with. When we hear this question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? It's something that to many sounds logical. But it is wrong. And it is an error that Paul took time to deal with. It's an objection that Paul took time to answer. Some think uh, that the preacher must only declare positive truths. That we should ignore things that are wrong. Just proclaim a simple gospel. But that's not what we find in Scripture. Pointing out things that are wrong is not a wrong thing to do. Yes, it divides truth from error, but it's not a divisive or wrong thing to do. In fact, it is what we are supposed to do. Error must be dealt with. It's not that we're seeking to cause trouble, but if somebody's going down the wrong road, if somebody's driving their car towards a cliff edge and they're about to fall off around the next bend, it's wise, it's good to stop them. Point out their error and tell them what the right direction is to go in. And this is what the Apostle is doing here. When you go through Scripture, you find that many errors, misunderstandings and objections are dealt with. Psalm 23, we find that the, the Good Shepherd is leading the flock. In the second verse there, you find this, the Good Shepherd is leading them into a green pasture. The sheep will have plenty of good food and peace. But that's not where that psalm ends. In verse 4 you find the good shepherd carries a rod. And that is something that can be used for the protection of the flock. That the flock may be uh, fearless in the presence of evil. Error is not to be quietly ignored. Again and again, it is to be dealt with. God has spoken. We have his word. We can read it. We can understand it. It means something. It's not enough to say that Jesus rose from the dead. These days, we have to declare that he rose bodily from the dead. We have to contend with those who think it was just some sort of mystical resurrection. 
some sense in which the ideas of Jesus live on in the hearts and minds of his people? No. Jesus rose bodily from the tomb. Scripture explains itself. A little example of something Jesus dealt with. Matthew chapter 5. There in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus was teaching, at verse 43 he says, Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbour and hate thine enemy. Some people hear that and think that Jesus was quoting from the Old Testament when he said, It has been said, Hate thine enemy. But that's not what the Old Testament said at all. Jesus went on to say, But I say unto you, love your enemies. You see, when he said, ye have heard it hath been said, he didn't say, it is written. He wasn't quoting from the scriptures when he said, hate thine enemy. It was what people had come to believe and to teach, and they were wrong. Leviticus chapter 19 and the 18th verse says, You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. People were not to take judgment into their own hands, but to show love to their neighbors. In Galatians, the Apostle Paul warned very clearly about the dangers of another gospel, which is not the gospel. The great error amongst the saints at Galatia was the business of mixing grace plus law. Mixing them together. You have to believe, but you also have to do something to be acceptable in God's sight. In verse 9, the apostle says, As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be let him be accursed. Error, you see, is dangerous. Error is deadly. It is to be firmly dealt with. It is one of the responsibilities of those who have the duty of preaching and teaching in the local church. It is part of the work of the under-shepherd uh, to protect the flock uh, from those who would deceive and those who would lead astray. To the church at Corinth, the apostle had to write and deal with various errors that had arisen, including 
their error in tolerating terrible immorality in the church and the chaos of their worship meetings. In church, we do not just do things which seem right to us in the present moment. We are met here to worship the Holy God. We are met here to worship in the light of Scripture. We worship in the manner in which the Lord would have us worship. And sometimes you may have heard that called the regulative principle of worship. God has spoken and we have his word. The epistle of Jude. We find that Jude desired to write positively about salvation. But instead he had to dwell upon the dangers faced by the church. Verse 4 we read, For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Ungodly men turning the grace of God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Small errors lead to bigger errors. Error leads to denying the Lord Jesus Christ. We must not, we must never tolerate error in the teachings of the church. Never. You notice in the letters to the seven churches in the second and third chapter of the book of Revelation, the Lord spent time commending them very often for faithfulness and things that were good, but he also dealt with error, and he dealt with it firmly. It is the job of the on the shepherd, of the teacher, the preacher in the church, to prepare the members of the congregation to deal with errors and objections to the gospel and to keep a lookout and prepare the people to cope with the enemy of the gospel however he appears. The Apostle Peter used the example of a roaring lion going about. And the Lord Jesus used the example in Matthew 7 verse 15 of a wolf in sheep's clothing looking at first glance like a teacher of truths but actually Devouring people with error. We're not to allow ourselves to be tricked or gently deceived into things that are wrong. But we are always to come back to Scripture. We are always to earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. And so it is. In these opening verses of chapter 6 of Romans, that the Apostle so clearly tackles an error head on and deals with it decisively. 
so that there's no room for doubt or for compromise. You might think that the Apostle Paul lived in the most prosperous time for the gospel in some ways. The, the, the church grew at an amazing rate. The gospel traveled from a small group, 120 in an upper room in Jerusalem, all the way to Rome and across the Roman Empire. How amazing. But it was a time of terrible persecution. The Roman Empire was no friend of the good news of Jesus Christ. Remember, the Apostle Paul ended up, where did he end up? He ended up in a prison. He was put on trial for his life because of his preaching about Jesus. (coughs) And it's this same Apostle who saw the absolute priority of the purity of the Gospel. It was when persecution was intense, he took time to proclaim the truth. He took time to deal with error. And so must we. Errors can be helpful. Questions can be helpful. Only in the sense, if they bring us back to Scripture... To find out what the truth is and apply it. Use such questions as teaching opportunities to bring people back to God and His grace and the wonders of Christ and Him crucified. What He achieved, what His death, His burial and His resurrection meant and means today for God's people. So, What shall we say then? Must always bring us back to scripture. Must always bring us back to answer questions biblically using the whole counsel of God. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Our second point. Justification means more than mere forgiveness. Forgiveness is at the heart of the gospel. That's true. It's essential. We need forgiveness. Because we can't earn righteousness. But the gospel is not just a certificate issued on one day saying, you have been forgiven. Go and live as you please. And now you've got a free pass. That's to misunderstand what the gospel is about. It's to misunderstand what justification by faith means. And what the Lord Jesus accomplished on that cross. Some have claimed that God's grace in forgiveness is a reason to sin more. And think about it for a moment. If God forgives drunkenness, does that mean we should get drunk more regularly so that he can forgive us more often and magnify his grace? 
That thought applies to any and every area of sin. And each of us has our own weaknesses. No, this is something that Paul rejects clearly. And he does so in a rather blunt way, which the translators in the authorised version have rendered as, God forbid, to bring out something of the strength of what he says. Literally. Not at all. Never. Certainly not. How shall we uh, that are dead to sin live any longer there? And that reference to dead is 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 in the past, in the, the completed tense. It's someone who has died. It's bringing us back to what happened when the Lord Jesus died on that cross. In Adam, we are guilty. Individually. Sinners in Adam. We are born in sin. Because we were in Adam. But in Christ, we have died to sin. What does that mean? Romans 5 verse 17. For if by one man's offence death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Sin reigned. In Adam, everyone dies. We die because we're guilty. Not just because we do individual acts that are wrong, but because we are sinners. We were born that way in Adam. But in Christ, the reign of sin is ended. Sin is no longer king, ruler, slave master. We've been moved from that kingdom into the kingdom of grace, receiving new life in Christ. Jesus said to Nicodemus, didn't he? Ye must be born again. And in Christ, on that cross, we who have trusted in Christ died to the reign of sin. No longer slaves to sin. Our death with Christ is pictured in baptism. Verse 3, Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? It's not that the water of baptism accomplishes something spiritual. That water doesn't give us new life. 
but it demonstrates what Christ did for us. Those who trust in Christ, those who are in Christ, died with him on that cross. That is why we're no longer slaves of sin. John Gill said, Grace in conversion is glorified by putting a stop to the reign of sin. The whole message of the gospel is that it is the power of God to rescue people, to save people, to deliver from the reign of sin. In Romans chapter 1, he makes this very clear argument concerning the power of God. In Romans chapter 1, it's a, it's a, as you read through that list of horrible things in Romans chapter 1, it's very discouraging because it's so much like our world today. Romans chapter 1. We see there, verse 19, that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. Everything we see around in creation declares the invisible things of God. But verse 21, we find that, that people didn't glorify him as God, but became vain in their imaginations. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator. There's a terrible list of sins as we read down through the chapter there. We find that God has given people over to their own desires. And it's made the world a bad place. But it's in that exact context that Paul began his letter. For I am not ashamed, he says at the 16th verse, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. To everyone that believeth, God frees people from slavery to sin. And it's exactly in that context of when sin is darkest in the world around us that the gospel needs to be preached most clearly, most widely. And that is the hope and truth that we bring to the world 
around us. But justification by faith isn't only freedom from the reign of sin. Justification by faith means new living. How shall we live any longer in the realm of sin? How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? The wages of sin is death. Verse 23 of chapter 6 of Romans. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And not only are we freed from the slavery of sin, but we receive new life which starts now. It starts in this life today. Fix your eyes on Christ and what he has done. Romans 6 verse 8, Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Galatians 2 verse 20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. This is about our union with Christ. Being in Christ. Hence I say... Uh, that the gospel of justification by faith, the good news that we preach is not just about a certificate of forgiveness. It is about freeing us from the slavery of sin. It is about our being in Christ. What's the picture that the Lord Jesus used in John chapter 15? The beginning of that chapter there. John 15 The vine. Who is the true vine? The Lord Jesus. What are his disciples? Branches. Branches of the true vine. The branch grows out of the vine. Receives its nourishment from the vine. And produces fruit because it is in the vine. That is a picture of all who have been justified by faith, all whom Christ came to save. Forgiveness. Freedom from the slavery to sin. New life in Christ. The fruit of the Spirit. Not the terrible works of the flesh. Matthew Henry says, we are dead to sin by our union with Christ. We cannot serve two masters. Hence, in Matthew chapter 5, we read those Beatitudes. What's, What's that all about? Blessed are those who 
mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He's describing somebody who's been transformed from slavery to sin into new life in Christ. Sorrow over sin instead of glorying in it, boasting in sin. Sorrow, mourning. And a new appetite, a new hunger, a new thirst for the things of God. Scripture begins to make sense. Because the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see it. Gives us understanding of what God has said. Jesus is seen as the wonderful Savior. He who was so humiliated and cruelly treated and apparently totally defeated won the greatest ever victory. When he died on that cross. When he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We know from reading the scriptures that it was because of the sins of his people that were laid upon him. That he suffered. It is because of his righteousness, because of his suffering because of his resurrection, that we have new life in Christ. My friends, if you hear this today, and you're thinking, I don't know anything much about this, I would ask you to come back and hear the word of God. To look to Jesus and hear the great truth. Repent and believe the good news. was how he began his ministry at the start of Mark's Gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Were the precious words given to the jailer at Philippi. My friends, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You shall be saved. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. That means forgiveness. But it also means deliverance from the slavery the bondage of sin. And it means newness of living today. We're no longer under sin's rule if we're in Christ. If you have any question about that, cry out for forgiveness, for cleansing through the blood of Christ. Your prayer will be heard and answered. For God is gracious and merciful. One day we will be delivered from the very presence of sin. 
and enjoy the presence and worship of our Savior forever. Amen.